So I don't know what TikTok's doing, but I'm not happy about it. And hey, guys, today is Sunday reading day, and that means. Hey guys, today is Sunday Reading Day, and that means we're continuing with The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Couple days, man. Hey guys, it's been a horrible day for electronics for me, so I apologize for any of that. Welcome TikTok, welcome Facebook, welcome YouTube, welcome Twitch. Really great to have you. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong, which means we could get to you. Uh, it may take us a couple days because California is huge, but we'll get to you. Anyway, uh, I'm going to address TikTok here for a second and. Hopefully somebody in the powers can be, that, that are there can, can hear me. I went from getting 300 average views on my videos to yesterday only getting one or two. And this is going into today. So I don't know if they put some kind of thing on me or what they did, but I'm really frustrated with TikTok right now because I should not be getting that amount of views. I should not. You know, usually I'm at, like I said, every time I put a short out, I average at least 300, but I'm not getting that. So I don't know what's going on with that. That being said, I got that out of my system. We're going to be reading today. It's Sunday reading day, and this is a way to kind of slowly kind of get into your week, your work week. And I've got a great book. I've, I've read it before. Um, it's the uh, History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. So if you know know the story, you know, she had the axe, the, the, that whole limerick. She had, she had the axe, gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, I think she gave her father 41, right? It's, it's a story about murders, two murders, her, her mother and father. But the thing is, it's interesting because Lizzie went to court trial and everything, but she never was convicted. So um, we're at day four on this book. We're getting really close to the date of the murders. And this is by Rebecca F. Pittman, by the way. She goes into a lot of detail about, you know, Lizzie's life and everything. And she did a bunch of research on Lizzie Borden and did, you know, did this a very thorough book. I want to let you know I do have a goal at the top of uh, Llamas. You don't have to do that, but if you do, I would really appreciate it because I'm just trying to support the channel, this channel and my other channels uh, with these goals. And thank you for the hearts. Uh, thank you very much. If you could double tap, I'd appreciate that too because I'd like to get, you know, 4,000 likes today if we can do that, okay? So what's going to happen is I'm going to be reading for about an hour from the Lizzie Borden book, and I think you'll find it interesting. You know, if you're interested in the Lizzie Borden, this is the book for you. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, same thing. Uh, hit those like buttons, hit those smiley buttons, hit those heart buttons. Show me some love. Because what that does is that puts you puts me up higher in the FYP to where Facebook and YouTube and TikTok see that and they distribute us out more. And that's the key here is to be distributed out more and shared. If you like what you hear and see today, uh, please feel free to share and let people know about us. 
uh, TikTok. We're going to start doing a lot more stuff on TikTok. Uh, I've just been a slow process getting there, but I appreciate everybody on TikTok. I cannot read the comments. I have old eyeballs, so it's not going to happen. But uh, if, if you could double tap that screen and try to get me to 4,000 likes a day and maybe send Maybe send me some roses or something because, yeah, I, I usually don't get a lot of gifts. Okay? So double tap that screen, and if you feel and if you'd like to send me a, a llama, that would be great. That would help with my bills this month. I'd appreciate it. Okay, that being said, uh, welcome, welcome. If you haven't subscribed already on YouTube, please, please feel free to do so. If you haven't followed me on Facebook, feel, please feel free to do so. Same thing with Twitch. All right, so let me open this up and get my tablet going, and we can get, get, into, get into the book. I see hearts. Thank you so much for the likes over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <coughs> 4,000 is my goal for likes today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So again, you don't have to lay on your, you don't have to stop what you're doing to listen. You can, <coughs> I actually have people who listen and at the same time they walk around their house do, doing household chores and stuff and, and housework. So <laughs> it's kind of it's cool. You know, I get carried around. So we are on day four of Lizzie Borden. We're going to probably read this one more weekend, and then we're going to shift into some really cool Christmas, Christmas paranormal paranormal themed Christmas stories. Okay. Double tap that screen over there. YouTube, uh, TikTok. Please double tap that screen. I'm glad to. I'm really happy to have you all here. Spend my Sunday with y'all. Okay, here we go. We're continuing with with the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. Talk about being blush face, right? All right, please, if you like what you hear, please double tap that screen. Double tap that screen. I cannot see your comments. Again, I can't see your comments because I have, like, old eyes. So, All right, here we go, you guys. Lizzie set down her cup and walked past the woman she detested, only giving way to her feelings as she mounted the stairs to her room. She sat down in her lounge and tried to drown out the noise thrumming against the outside glass of her windows. She was tired of the panic constantly gripping her heart. She sat there, wheels turning in a fevered mind. They weren't going to the farm today, or any time this week. She had to change gears. The plan formed slowly in her mind. She played it, she played with it, moved this piece here, rearranged that segment there until it was solid and solidified. This could work. Saying she would stay with the Morrises a day or two bought her time. Abby couldn't force her to leave for Marion. And if Abby and her father did suddenly leave for the farm, she would be only eight miles away at the Warrens. Easy access to Swansea. The farm, the milk can, and them. Whether she killed them here or killed them in Swansea, she would need more poison. She used all she had stolen from the painter's supplies. Once again, I have permission from the author to read this. If anybody feels uncomfortable with what's in the book, just move on. Well, there's other places you can go and, and other people you can visit. Please don't turn me into the Facebook, Twitter, you know, TikTok police or anything like that or get me banned because I'm just reading from a book. And if you, Like I said, if you find it uncomfortable, just move on. Rain began to fall, plopping on the hard-packed road and striking the metal roof of Crow's Barn to the east of her. She checked her hair in the dressing room mirror, picked up her satchel, and descended the stairs. Abby was moving about the kitchen, absentmindedly checking the pantry, her thoughts somewhere else. 
She jumped when Lizzie entered the room, wearing a waterproof a waterproof and carrying an umbrella from the hall coat stand. Abby stepped from the pantry into the open kitchen area, as though to speak to the girl. She watched, her heart thudding, as Lizzie passed her, managing a small smile and walked down the back entry to the side screen door. As she opened it, she glanced back at her stepmother, still rooted in place, the dark clouds outside casting the kitchen into shadows. The rain picked up in intensity, falling and pelting droplets that hit Lizzie's open umbrella in a rhythmic tattooing. The roads would be muddy soon. But at least the constant dust raised from horses' hooves would be lessened. As she headed down street, people passing her on the sidewalk nodded her way, some offering a good morning, Miss Borden, or a more familiar Miss Lizzie. All right, let me, uh, I think I'm not on my mic over here either because I see the other mic up. Give me a second. It's been one of those technological blowout days. There we go. Okay. Lizzie hastened to a nearby drugstore on Pleasant Street. Phileas Martell, the owner, was not in, but his clerk, young Hippolyte Martell, greeted her. After slowly perusing the aisles of merchandise, giving the impression of an innocent shopping trip, Lizzie approached the counter and asked the clerk for some arsenic. When, when uh, Hippolyte paused, she said, Price is not a problem. Finally, finding his voice, he informed her that, as the drugst druggist is not present, I cannot possibly comply with your wishes. Lizzie left, clearly showing her disappointment. Undeterred, she headed north to E.S. Brown's general merchandise store on North Main Street. She approached the pharmacy counter at the back of the store and informed the clerk there, by the name of Gifford, that she wished to buy some poison. He refused her. Lizzie had always believed arsenic would be a simple thing to obtain. It was readily sold at drugstores and had been used by so many people in the Victorian era to dispose of wealthy relatives that it had been given the nickname the Inheritance Poison. Possibly due to the widespread overuse for nefarious reasons, it now required a doctor's prescription to obtain it. Remembering another book she had read concerning poisons, she seized upon a new plan. Perhaps it was only arsenic being regulated. She would ask for another poison, although she was not as familiar with its application. Marching back into, Phileas Mar into the Phileas Martell drugstore on Pleasant Street, she approached the, yeah, the apprentice face of, 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 of Hippolyte Martell and said simply, how about pr pr prussic acid? The clerk again said his hands were tied, and it would be best if she returned when the druggist was back from dinner. Hippolyte later described her to the police as being about 26 years old and weighing around 150 pounds. As many newspapers would later report, Lizzie looked like a, looked a good 10 years younger than her actual age. As Lizzie Borden dashed about Fall River's downtown district, she may have just missed her father as he came and went from various banks and businesses that he either owned or sat on the board of directors. He was taking inventory of his businesses and directing a deed to be drawn up, one that would cause his funeral procession through the streets of Fall River only five days later. As the rain increased, Beating down on a stovepipe hat, Andrew Borden's mind was in turmoil. What was he to do with his youngest daughter, Lizzie? Hadn't he given her everything within his power to make her happy? Even a five-month grand tour of Europe had only intensified her fiery temper and mood swings when she returned home. Andrew's thoughts turned to his eldest daughter, Emma, and how she had given up her larger bedroom to Lizzie in an effort to ease her younger sister's transition 
back to the little house after seeing the world. Emma moved into the small, closet-like room that abutted Lizzie's new domain, and hoped the exchange would make her sister happy. If you like what you're hearing, double-tap that screen, double-tap that screen. And if you feel like it, you can send me a llama. There's no pressure. That would be great, too. The exchange of rooms lifted her spirits for time as Lizzie turned it into a bedroom parlor, complete with red-hanging potteries, a private wash area, lounge, writing desk, bookcase, and dressing table. Picture postcards of the many places she visited in Europe were proudly displayed along with a few precious souvenirs. Her bed was placed diagonally near the corner door leading into Abby and Andrew's bedroom. The fireplace mantle and hearth prevented the bed from going corner to corner leaving a space where one could walk around the bed's headstand to the door that was bolted on her parents' side and hooked on her own. One door, separating daughter from father, double-locked, against what? Against whom? Chapter 8, Tuesday, August 2nd, 1892. Two days before the murders. Thursday morning dawned with oppressive heat and mugginess that hangs, with the depressive heat and mugginess that hangs on after a rainstorm. The sun was shining, and the noise of business trade on 2nd Street could be heard through Lizzie Borden's open bedroom windows. Rather than waiting until breakfast was over, as was her as was her custom, this day she made it a point to join her family at the table. She was dressed to go out, a letter she had penned to her sister resting in just like the time, resting in an oversized satchel. The tension at the breakfast table was palpable. As Bridget brought in fresh coffee, the maid glanced apprehensively at the, at the strained faces of the three people seated in the dining room. Abby looked pale, her eyes darting between her plate and her husband's face. Lizzie merely sipped at her coffee, a slight flush to her cheeks. Once the maid left the room, closing the dining room door behind her, Abby took a deep breath that began, that, that, and began, Andrew twisting nervously in his seat. Lizzie, are you sure you won't go on with your plans? As you see... I will be here to take care of your father, and you need not postpone your trip to Marion. You can always come back on Sunday to take care of your church meeting. Abby's small smile, meant to look reassuring, merely meant to look reassuringly, came off as nervous and faltering. Tension hung over the table as the August humidity outside. Abby Borden was a short woman, only slightly smaller than Lizzie at 5'3". Her, her face was round with was with a somewhat vacacious look about it, created by a mouth that turned down at the corners and eyes that looked trusting, yet tired. Her dark brown hair was threaded with gray and caught, caught up atop of her head, a fake braid twisted and pinned to add style and convenience. She was 64 years old. Her weight was remarked upon often as she tipped the scales at 220 pounds. Her simple joys in life were her husband, her family on 4th Street, and her immaculate home. She sat and waited for Lizzie's reply, sweat puddling along the folds of her neck. Lizzie let her steady gaze wander from Abby's face over to her father's, who would not meet her eyes. A wave of mixed emotions flashed through her as she studied the balding head fr fringed with white hair, now bowed, as he picked up the last of his food. She had loved him so much. Images of them fishing and Andrew taking her with him as a child as he worked in his early carpentry business rippled through her mind, causing a momentary stirring of pain. He would be 70 next month, and he looked it. His face was chiseled and determined. He looked beaten and strained. He know she noticed the habitual twisting of his lips. 
his short beard moving with him. After several uncomfortable moments, Lizzie set down her cup and said, in quiet, even tones, I'm quite sure. I have already written to Aunt Mary and expect a reply from her today. The reaction she received from her father was more than she could have hoped for. His slender frame actually flinched, and his dark eyes shot across the table at her in unveiled anger. He had not known the letter to Aunt Mary was at this moment being delivered in Warren. Lizzie rose and left the room. As Andrew and Abby sat there in stunned silence, they heard the opening and closing of the front door. Lizzie walked determinedly along the downward slanting sidewalk toward town. There was a lot to do before the new meal. That the Swansea deal would be signed over tomorrow at one of her father's banks was a certainty. She had pieced together that much from over her conversations and glimpses of her father's letters. Her trips over the past few weeks bore out her suspicions that a horse deal was being put together that involved the upper farm at Swansea, a farm that had been in the Borden family for years. That she and Emma were being kept in the dark meant only one thing. Some business transaction was going on that would take the farm away from their inheritance. Just like the house on 4th Street, Andrew had put in Abby's name five years earlier. Like players in a chess game, each of the involved parties moved to outmaneuver the other. Yet Lizzie was always circling, like an omnipresent vulture hovering overhead. Andrew Borden's routine never varied, and in the days and hours leading up to his murder, it was his undoing. He wore the same dark suit and Prince Elper coat, morning, noon, and night, spring through winter. Each morning he left the house around 9 a.m., unless he was attending to business matters at home. Not only did he deal with tenants from his many commercial holdings, but he also sold some merchandise from his cellar. Large barrels of vinegar were stored in the earthen first cellar room, along with other sundries as they became available. If he could store it, make it, or get a good deal on it, he hoarded goods for sale. Vinegar was always needed for pickling, and his neighbors, including Charles Sawyer, had bought from him. His daily rounds included a stop at the post office, where he mailed letters and picked up the morning post. Mail was delivered twice daily. Lizzie and Emma often handed him letters to post for them as he left the house each morning. When he returned for the noon and evening meals, he was usually greeted by his daughters, asking if there were any letters for them. The Fallbrother Post Office and Customs House was a large stone building on Bedford Street, a block over from City Hall and the police station. From the Borden House, it was a mere five to eight minute walk. Market Street, sitting half a block away, would become a scene of mass frenzy when the inquest and preliminary hearing into the Borden murders took place. Andrew also picked up a copy of the province's journal newspaper, for which he had a subscription. For one cent, you could buy plain white wrappers which you would address and leave at the post office for your reserved copy. After the post office, Andrew typically stopped at Pierre Leduc's crochet. It was the only extravagance for which he indulged. Barber shops in the 1800s were a mainstay for businessmen and were relatively inexpensive. You could get a haircut for 25 cents and a shave for 10 cents. From there, he would make the rounds of three banks, stop by the various stores he owned, and often stopped to see his property manager, Charles Cook, who had an office in the Andrew J. Borden building on the third floor. Charles C. Cook's primary business was insurance. He had charge of the, of the Andrew J. Borden building at the corner of Anna Juana South Main Street in Fall River. Andrew entrusted him with, the, with collecting rents and acting as a general property manager. 
It was his custom to visit Charles at least three to four times a week. After Andrew's murder, Charles became the board and sister's property manager as they inherited their father's many business concerns. According to Mr. Cook, Lizzie had, has visited his office several times. She was no stranger to deeds and their overall appearance. Andrew Borden was as close to the Dickens image of Ebenezer Scrooge as Fall River could hope to find. Gaunt, white-whiskered, and dressed habitually in a long black coat and top hat, he walked the blocks near his home with his small notebook and tiny pencil in hand, jotting down figures and overseeing tenants. Although he loved his family, his world was one of ciphers and cold, harsh cash. At 11 a.m. in the morning, Andrew typically arrived home. He hung his Prince Albert coat in the dining room closet and laid it over the arm of the lounge there and donned a smoking jacket he kept hanging on the nail by the kitchen door that leads into the sitting room. If there was business to be conducted, he took care of that from 11 to 12. If there were no transactions to be handled, he would often sit in the sitting room and read his mail and the Providence Journal. If there was a time for a nap, he would put on his slippers kept in the closet in that room and lay down on the sofa. The key to his locked bedroom door was kept on the mantel shelf near the doorway leading into the kitchen. This was the nature of the Borden residence, mind-numbing routine. It rarely varied, and in that house, with interconnecting rooms and without hallways, there was no privacy. Each of the dentists knew each other's patterns. Bridget's was especially regimented. In 1890s New England, the chores were done on a daily routine, relegated to each day of the week. Monday was wash day and for hanging out clothes. Tuesday was ironing. Wednesday was mending. Thursday was for scrubbing and the, and the maids on 2nd Street could all be seen on that day washing windows. Friday was sweeping, which for Bridget only happened every other Friday in the front hallway. Saturday was baking and the Sabbath afternoon was usually the maid's day off. This predictable timetable gave a person with black motives a distinct advantage. That Lizzie had access to the Prince Albert coat at times when her father was asleep on the sofa or upstairs for a moment was a certainty. When he stuffed a letter or two from Uncle John after reading them at the post office into his pocket, that's unknown. A letter was found in his pocket the day of the murders. Emma recalled her father would burn correspondence, but not business letters. He may have kept them in his desk in his small safe room adjoining the bedroom. When the safe was opened under the direction of the district attorney and Marshal Hilliard during the inquest, it contained no letters. They found deeds, business papers, and bank statements, but not the hope for will or letters. Perhaps, not dreaming one of his daughters would rifle through his coat pockets, he may have put off the trip on occasion to the hot upper floor after returning home from lunch to put important papers away. He would be going out again after dinner and lunch, well, the parentheses lunch, and there would be a second post to collect in the afternoon. As Andrew Borden made his rounds about town that Tuesday morning, Bridget was hanging the family's clothes in the backyard, a day late due to Monday's rain. Abby was alerting her sister that she would babysit little Abby on Thursday after all, as they were canceling their plans for the farm, and Uncle John was scurrying around Westport and Fairhaven trying to come up with Plan B now that Lizzie was back home and watching like a hawk from its area. Sometime that day, word reached Andrew that over at the two Swansea farms, Mr. Eddie and Alfred Johnson, the Swede, had been taken suddenly ill. New Bedford, a mere 30-minute ride. I'm sorry. Lizzie, meanwhile, had taken the train to New Bedford, a mere 30-minute ride. The morning sun baked down on the shoppers as Lizzie hurried to meet the man 
who would help her with her plan. If she kept asking for poisons, people were bound to become suspicious. Yet, she had so little time. The plan she had hatched for poisoning the milk at the Swansea farm had been sound. She could use it again. Now at home, as poison found in the, in the milk can would point to someone outside the house, an enemy. Each morning, the milk from the farm was left in a can on the side porch around 4.30. Bridget brought it in and poured it into manageable milk bottles that were kept in the icebox. She then rinsed out the pail and left it on the porch to be replaced the next day with a different can of fresh milk. But the hatchet, that had to change. She had planned to use the old one in the barn at the Swansea house, making it look like a weapon of convenience that the murderer picked up. She couldn't do that now. And she couldn't use one from the warden cellar. It had to be from outside the house. She would have to get a new one. If you like what you hear, double tap that screen. Show me some love. Double tap the screen, please. Same with you guys. Hey, I see a, I, I see some love over there. Thank you. Arsenic could be found in several over-the-counter products. Rough on rats was something she had read about. The white powder resembled flour, perhaps a dusting on the bread, like the bakers did. It also came in crystals like the painter used. That could be placed in milk. But arsenic, po po arsenic poisoning wasn't a fast enough method. Lizzie stepped into the drugstore of E.E. E. Wright in New Bedford and boldly asked for prussic acid. She was prepared for the usual speech, and she received it. It was denied her. She left the store in a mood that mirrored the summer heat as the city and her thoughts spun around her. She would have to settle for arsenic, even if she had to steal it. It had to look like an intruder, a maniac. No one would think to look for poison after seeing them hacked to death. But rather than, the risk, rather than risk being caught, she brought in her new accomplice from Fairhaven. A few minutes later, a Portuguese entered Hillman and Vincent's hardware store in New Bedford. He spent some time with the axes and hatches at one of the counters. Finally, he selected a small shingling hatchet with a three-and-a-half-inch blade and carried it to the counter. The shiny new hatchet with a gold gilt emblem stamped upon it glinted in the store light. Mr. Vincent studied the man. He was obviously a laborer from somewhere. He casually asked where the man worked, and he said the Davis Farm in Dartmouth, in broken English. The store owner rang up the sale, along with a box of rat poison, which was a typical purchase by farmers and their employees. The man paid him in cash. The proprietors wrapped the hatchet carefully in several layers of white paper and tied the package with wine. The foreigner picked up his purchases and exited the store, disappearing from the view into the crush of shoppers. Minutes before entering the hardware store, the Portuguese stopped in the drugstore. He bought a soda and some candy, then loitered near the front door. The store owner was watching him. He was at the front of the store, sipping a soda and looking out the window for a lady he was to meet. He glanced up and down the crowded sidewalk. Then, filling the store's owner's eyes on him, opened the door and walked out. His errand accomplished, he handed over to the lady the packages from Hillman's. He stepped into an alley, reached into his pocket, and counted his cash. He may not be able to read, but he knew money. It had been the easiest work he had ever done. She had asked him only one question about his purchase in the hardware store. Did you mention the Davis Farm in South Dartmouth? He had forgotten to say South, but he nodded to the affirmative anyway. There would be more money if he kept his errands for the lady quiet. It all sounded fine to him. Lizzie cradled her satchel in her lap as the train headed back to Fall River, a white package tied in twine peeking from his steps. 
A small box rested next to it. She would kill them tonight. She would drop a quick note to her aunt when she reached Fall River. The town hall clock struck 11 a.m. Andrew Borden had hastened to finish his rounds and go home. His head was down, the sidewalks a blur, cracks, and debris. His thoughts tumbled like manic acrobats in his tired mind. A pair of shoes appeared suddenly and he stopped. One of his associates stood before him smiling. I thought you were spending summer at the farm, the man said. He noticed his friend was uncharacteristically agitated. His face creased with tension. No, Andrew blurted out. Contrary to his private nature, I have had so much difficulty in my family, I have not felt like going away. Suddenly embarrassed at his lack of propriety, he merely tipped his hat and hurried up the street, the man staring after him. Andrew entered his home through the side door. Bridget unlatched it for him and returned to her cooking. The flooring smell of fried swordfish hung in the air. A loaf of baker's bread, a soft dusting of flour coating the golden surface, rested on the kitchen table. After changing from his Prince Albert to a smoking jacket, Andrew sat in the sitting room near an open window in his large armchair. He then slid the mailing wrapper from the provinces journal and snapped the pages open. But his mind would not focus on the black ink before him. Abby entered and sat near him in the rocking chair. Their conversation was in hushed whispers. Lizzie surprised her father and stepmother by once again joining them at the table for dinner. Lizzie placed her napkin in her lap and poured herself a cup of tea. She glanced at the pitcher of cold milk sitting at the center of the table, droplets of condensation running down on his glass. Abby and Andrew filled their plates with fried swordfish and took large slices of toasted baker's bread. Andrew reached for the milk pitcher and poured the liquid all over his toast. Bridget had just entered the room to set the cakes and cookies on the table and departed, not noticing if Abby also drenched the bread and cake and milk, as was the New England custom. She returned, placing a plate of some bread she had made herself on the table in case they ran out. Lizzie nibbled at her fish, watching, watching the actions of her parents closely. They gobbled their food and made light conversation, obviously nervous to suddenly have so much of Lizzie's unexpected company. Andrew mentioned that there was sickness over at the farm. Lizzie cast a quick glance at him. Comments on the weather, some store sales, and other innocuous conversation filled the noonday mealtime. Abby rang the bell, signifying to Bridget that they were finished. The three rose, Lizzie going upstairs to her room and Andrew and Abby retiring to the sitting room. Once they heard Lizzie's footsteps overhead in the bedroom, they began talking. A small puff of brick dust fell silently inside the sitting room fireplace. Tuesday night's supper was to be a repeat of dinner, warmed over swordfish, with baker's bread, cakes, cookies, and tea. Bridget, noticing the bread was nearly gone, donned the shawl, shawl that hung on the peg in the back entry. Her soft felt hat it headed over the bakery on Borden Street a block away. The smell of baking bread and cake filled her nostrils as she opened the door of the shop, a small bell tinkling overhead. She asked for dinner rolls, but was told they were out. She settled for another loaf of flour bread, paid them the five cents, and headed back with her bundle. The maid hurried along Borden Street with her purchase. The cicadas were loud, so loud, they nearly drowned out the carts and horses that passed her along the way. Lizzie heard their evening song as well through the screen door, as she hurriedly opened the icebox nestled in a closet nearby in the old sink room. She filled the remaining bottles containing Tuesday's milk with a white powder and swirled it around. She had barely finished and was leaving the sink room when Abby entered the kitchen from the dining room. 
Lizzie barely glanced at her as she headed for her room. Bridget entered the side yard and closed the gate behind her. Abby met her at the screen door as she climbed the side steps and reached for the handle. Did you get dinner rolls, Abby asked. No, ma'am, Bridget said in her thick Irish brogue. Day was out of them. I got a loaf of baker's bread. Abby handed her five cents to replace the change Bridget had spent for the, for the bread from her own money. The young servant then went back to preparing the evening meal, this time sitting three plates at the table as it appeared Lizzie had taken a sudden fancy to eating with the old folks, something she had never really did. Maybe now there would be some peace around here, Bridget thought. Maybe she is going to try to get along. Maybe she just misses Miss Emma. Bridget Sullivan was a 26-year-old Irish immigrant who had worked for the boarders for two years and nine months. She was a pretty woman with thick, dark hair, a full figure, and at times a temper, which flared up occasionally during the later murder trials and inquisitions. An Irish Catholic, she was steeped in her religious traditions and believed flagrant lying continued to hell. Lying by omission, however, might let her squeak by. Her duties at the Bordens were light compared to the usual chores required of a maid. When Andrew Knowlton questioned her during the preliminary hearing after the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, he asked her the following. Knowlton, what were your duties? Answer, well, I'd done the washing, ironing, and cooking. Question, anything else besides that? Answer, a little sweeping and scrubbing. Question, which part of the house did you have the sweeping of? Answer, I had the front hall to do, the front entry. Question, what days did you sweep the front hall? Answer, every other week, Friday. Did, question, did you have any care of the beds? Answer, no, sir. Question, none of them at all? No, sir. Question, did you have any duties in any of the bedrooms upstairs? Answer, no, sir. Bridget brought in the dishes of stored fish, bread, cakes, and cookies and set them in front of the three silent members comprising the Borden's household. Emma Borden, Lizzie's older sister, was still away on vacation to Fairhaven. Lizzie washed as Andrew's afternoon ritual of soaking his toast in milk was repeated. The baker's bread and Bridget's homemade loaf were liberally doused until there, there remained very little milk in the pitcher. Abby had only eaten the cakes and bread foregoing the fish. Lizzie washed, washed their faces closely, looking for a change in their behavior or countenance. Abby rang the bell for Bridget, and she and Andrew once again removed to the sitting room for their evening conversation. Bridget sat down on Andrew's chair and had her dinner. Lizzie angrily climbed the front stairs. She entered her room and sat on the edge of the bed. She could hear the soft murmuring of their voices coming through her fireplace. But it did not matter now what they were saying. If it all went well, they would be dead by morning. Surely the arsenic would show some effect soon. She glanced at her small pack police that she would take to Warren in the morning early for her visit to Aunt Mary Morse. Word would get her into the Warren that her parents had been tragically murdered. There would be no trip to Marion. Emma Borden sat in the cozy parlor of her dear friend Helen Brownell. The briny smell of ocean water wafted in through the open windows and fluttered the lace curtains in a rhythmic dance of moonlight. She had not felt so peaceful in a long time. Here she was away from the constant drama her younger sister insisted upon creating. She was finally able, uh, finally away from the tension and pretense. She shared no affection for her stepmother, Abby, and the strain of maintaining a civil facade was draining. At 42 years old, Emma had given up any hope of marriage and creating a family of her own. She had an angular face, 
with a prominent nose, warm eyes, and wavy dark hair pulled back severely into a bun. Where Lizzie was big-boned and wide-shouldered, Emma was ramrod straight, slender, and unremarkable. She wished only to live her life in peace, enjoying close friends and life's simple pleasures. Ironically, as she sat there, revering her escape from her unhappy home, she was handed a letter by Helen's mother. She recognized her sister's familiar scroll. The glow faded. Now what? She, she was already aware Lizzie had canceled her trip to marry into vacation at the seaside cottage with her friend, Dr. Handy. She stayed in New Bedford for five days, doing as Lord knew what. With trepidation, Emma read the lines written on the expensive stationery, and, feeling, and a feeling of dread overtook her. Helen, noticing her friend's sudden change of pallor, asked what was wrong. Emma handed her Lizzie's note and watched for her friend's reaction to the words. Helen looked up in confusion. What does it mean? A strange man running around the Bourne property at night, trying side door, darting into the backyard, their father having angry words with visitors to the house. Enemies? Predictions of doom? Emma felt a sudden wave of panic. Something was wrong. Something was very wrong. The city hall clock at downtown Fall River struck nine bells. From its perch, only a couple of blocks away from the Borden residence, the sound of the hourly alert was deep and sonorous. Lizzie lay in her bed in the ensuing shadows and listened for sounds coming from the sitting room below, where her parents were talking. She could hear the low tones of Andrew's deep voice, followed by the soft replies of Abby. Lizzie's heart was racing. Why weren't they showing signs of the poisoning? Has she not put in enough? Minutes later, she heard them enter their bedroom next to hers. The sound of creaking bed springs came to her as they climbed onto the old mattress. Minutes passed. Suddenly, the sound of retching came to her through their closed bedroom door, directly behind her headboard. Her pulse raced, and she held her breath. Would they die? The reality of it hit her hard in the face. It was one thing to plan a murder. It was another to hear your victims in their death throes. Abby and Andrew were both vomiting now exclamations of pain filling their brief reprieves. Lizzie's heart was pounding. The noises from the street irritated her as she strained to hear what was happening in the room beside hers. She suddenly thought of Bridget, whose room was in the attic. If she heard them vomiting, she would come to check on them and would wonder why Lizzie wasn't. Pulling on a robe, she pulled aside the red portiere hanging at the back of her bed and tapped on the door separating their bedrooms. She called out, asking if they were all right. A bolt sliding back sounded, and Andrew opened the door. The smell of sickness assaulted her nostrils, and she felt her stomach lurch in response. What's wrong? Lizzie asked them. Abby was cradling a slop pail, several towels lying next to her on the floor. Can I do anything for you? Her father said simply, no. Lizzie heard a renewed binge of vomiting from Abby's direction. Swallowing the bile, rising in her throat, Lizzie managed to say, she was sick as well and would be lying down in her bed if they needed her. She lay there in the darkness, the sounds of their pain coming through the thin wall separating the two rooms. It dragged on for hours. Nervous excitement turned to anger as the sounds of sickness were still going on as the town hall clock struck midnight. It was at this time that Lizzie mimicked their sounds of retching, realizing she would need to look like a victim as well. Sometime during the wee morning hours of Wednesday, August 3rd, the house became quiet. Chapter 9, Wednesday, August 3rd, 1892. 
If you like what you see, show me some love. Double tap that screen. Give me some hearts over on Facebook and uh, YouTube. I really appreciate it. The pale sunlight of early morning streaked across the, across the floral carpeting and the white counterpane bedspread. Lizzie was seated at her writing desk, penning a note to her Aunt Mary. She wouldn't be coming after all as they were all taken ill. She angrily stuffed the letter into her purse. With the Swansea deal going through, she had to stay here and figure out a way to stop them from going forward with it. If the poison had worked, the plan was to kill them with a new hatchet early Wednesday morning before Bridget arose. Lizzie would take the key from the sitting room mantle, enter their room, find them dead from the poisoning, and attack them with the blade, making it look like a madman had come in, the, come in that morning when the house was quiet and killed them. She planned to be on her way to her Aunt Mary before Bridget was up, leaving the front door spring lock not quite latched. No one would suspect her, a board and a Christian woman, of committing such a heinous act. But, she discovered, when the first rays of sunlight pierced the lace curtains of her bedroom, they were still alive. She heard them coughing. Murmurings came from the bedroom next to hers. They were awake. She glanced at her sister's empty bedroom that connected to her own and felt a sudden pang. She missed Emma. She needed her to lean, lean on right now. But Emma would not have approved of the mission. Lizzie was on. Not, not all of it, anyway. Lizzie opened her bedroom door leading to the second floor, landing. She paused and listened. The faint sound of the stove fire being opened and closed came to her. She could hear Bridget setting out her pans and feeding wood into the heavy black oven. She could picture her, setting out her supplies, pushing her bangs from her forehead as she moved about the kitchen. Bridget looked up in surprise as Lizzie walked through the room. The girl was usually not down before nine. The maid glanced at the kitchen clock. It wasn't, it wasn't even seven. Mr. and Mrs. Borden had come down earlier and were in the sitting room. Bridget noticed they did not look well. Mrs. Borden said they had all been sick throughout the night. Attorney Knowlton questioned Bridget during her preliminary hearing for the Borden murder case about that morning. Knowlton. These people had been sick, had they not? Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been sick, and Miss Lizzie had been taking care of them and had been sick herself? Bridget. That's what they said. Knowlton. She looked sick, did she? Bridget. I did not notice. She told me she was sick that morning. Knowlton. Wednesday morning? Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. It was the night before Mr. and Mrs. Borden were ill. Did you hear them up, up around? Bridget. No, sir. Knowlton. Miss Lizzie. Miss Lizzie's room was right next to theirs. Her room opened into their room? Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. They were vomiting? Bridget. Yes, sir. That is what they said. Knowlton. Mrs. Borden said she was sick, or had been taken sick, that night, and was sick nearly all night. Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Did they all come down to breakfast? Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. What did they have for breakfast? Bridget. Pork steak and Johnny cakes and coffee. Lizzie glanced at the pork steak sizzling in the skillet. The grease sputtered and stopped. It could have been any Wednesday morning in the Borden home, except Andrew Borden was lying prostrate on the sitting room lounge his stomach roiling from the smells coming from the kitchen on the other side of the door. His arm was bent and flung across his pale face. His upper lip pebbled with perspiration. Abby was halfway laying on, in the big overstuffed chair across from him, wringing her hands and talking some nonsense about being poisoned. Andrew was in no mood for it today. 
he had more serious matters to deal with. As soon as he could muster, he had to get downtown. Bridget asked Lizzie if she was also real sick the night before. She did not look anything like Abby, who was pale. She admitted she was, and that she had tried to help her father and stepmother. Lizzie would later report she too was vomiting around midnight. As Bridget busied herself in the kitchen, Lizzie crept to the back stairs leading to the attic. She caught sight of the empty milk can sitting on the floor of the sink room and as she passed by. Bridget had already rinsed it out after emptying Wednesday's milk into the bottles. Another plan had not worked, but Lizzie had not given up. The bank deal was today. She doubted they would still go. They were both still very ill, but just in case, she had to hurry. The attic was already warm. For the first time, Lizzie felt sorry for Bridget. Her room was just ahead of her at the top of the attic stairs. The maid withered up here in the summer months and froze during the winter when the door Atop, the door atop the attic stairs was usually closed to keep the heat trapped below. Bridget had always seemed like a fixture to Lizzie, one whose purpose was to serve. No more important than the last maid, Maggie. Yet, for a moment, Lizzie felt empathy for her. Lizzie stepped out into the large attic area and hurried to the locked door of one of the storage rooms. Unlocking it, she entered the side room with the chimney. The room was filled with trunks, crates, and seasonal clothing. She, she headed for a row of banging bags. For a row of hanging bags. <laughs> hanging hangs. <laughs> Taking one down, she removed the sealskin cape or a sealskin cape. Draping it over her arm, she left the room, rocking the door, relocking the door. Okay. Her timing was perfect as she descended the back stairs. Bridget was in the dining room, setting out the pork steak, Johnny cakes, and coffee. Her father and Abby were settling in, uncertain, to the breakfast before them. Lizzie walked quietly through the sitting room and past the open dining room door. Keeping the cape hidden from their view, she hurried into the front entry and set up to her room. She left the cape and returned to the breakfast table. The unhappy threesome nibbled dubiously at the breakfast, thoughts of poisoning running through Abby's mind. Gratefully, she saw no baker's bread or sugar cakes present at the table. When Bridget entered the dining room to have her own meal, she found plenty of leftover food. Abby and Andrew headed back to the sitting room where Andrew once again lay down on the sofa. Abby made him as comfortable as she could and then headed down to, then headed down the entry to the front door. Where are you going? Andrew asked feebly. I'm going for Bowen, Abby said determinedly. Perhaps their family physician, Dr. Seabury Bowen, would believe they were being poisoned even if Andrew would not. My money shan't pay for it, he hollered angrily, as his wife's stout, stout form disappeared out the front door. Abby waddled across Second Street, her face covered in perspiration from the heat, the sudden exertion, and the illness. She stepped to the second door of the South and Miller home that Dr. Bowen and his wife, Phoebe, shared. South and Miller was Phoebe's father, as she and her husband had set up a home and a doctor's practice in the second half of the large house, just caddy corner from the Bordens. According to Hosea Knowlton, questioning Dr. Bowen on the stand during the coroner's inquest, Knowlton, you had not been called that week to the family? Bowen, no, sir. I had not been called over to see them. The day before the murders, Wednesday morning, about 8 o'clock or before 8, Mrs. Borden came to the door and said she was frightened that, and that she was afraid she was poisoned. I told her to come in. She sat down and she said the night before about 9 o'clock, she and her husband commenced to vomit. 
and vomited for two or three hours until 12. I, I understood. I asked her what she had eaten for supper, and she told me. She said she had eaten some baker's white bread, and she had heard of baker's cream cakes being poisonous. and was afraid there was something poisonous in the bread that made her vomit. She said she only ate cakes and baker's white bread. At that time, she had a sort of an eruption of vomiting slightly. I was afraid she was going to vomit there. I rather got ready for her. I told her to go home and told her what to take, and she took it. Knowlton, do you recollect what, what it was you prescribed for her? Bowen, I told her to take some castor oil and take it with a little port wine to take the taste off, and probably that would be all she would want. I think immediately after breakfast, I thought they were neighbors. I would just go over. Before that, she said Lizzie came down. She heard them vomiting. I think she was in the next room, and she was up too, and she commenced to vomit at that time, about 12. I thought if they did not call me, I would go over and make a friendly call. I went over after breakfast. I think Bridget let me in. I'm sure it was the front door. I said, Mr. Borden, what is the matter? He looked at me and wanted to know if anybody had sent for me. I told him no. Mrs. Borden was over. I thought I would just come over and see. He seemed well enough then. He said he felt a little heavy and did not feel just right, but he did not think he had any medicine. I did not urge him at all, of course, and I went home. I did not think much about it. I saw Mr. Borden out two or three hours afterwards. When I went in, I saw Lizzie run up the stairs. Mrs. Borden I did not see because I had seen him before. Knowlton, where did you go after, or where did you afterwards see Mr. Borden? Bowen, I saw him Wednesday walking along between the side door and the gate. Lizzie, I saw walking up the street, and I concluded they were all right. It was later determined that it was actually Dr. Bowen's wife, Phoebe, who had seen Lizzie and Andrew Borden leaving their home that day. Phoebe Bowen said she saw Lizzie leave a little after six o'clock in the evening, heading down street. She was sure of the time, as it was just after the Bowen family was finishing supper. Why Dr. Bowen took credit for the sightings is not known, unless he wanted to keep his excitable wife out of the murder case spotlight, or Lizzie had left the house twice that day. Miss, Miss, Mrs. Bowen was called to testify anyway. Andrew Bowen rallied enough to get dressed in the same black suit and Prince Albert coat and head downtown or down street at 11 o'clock. He stopped in the building named for him and collected the rent checks from Charles Cook. It is probable he left his deathbed to do more than to pick up a check. He could have easily gotten the next morning just because he deposited it in the bank. And maybe he was telling Mr. Cook that the deed transfer would have to go forward tomorrow and they, as they were all sick. He may have also tried to reach John Morse. Abby was lying down. Bridget was in her room washing some windows to get a head start on the next day's work schedule, and Andrew was downtown. Lizzie seized the opportunity to grab the cape and slip from the house. She walked quickly up the street to a drugstore she did not frequent, as it was in the wrong part of town. For someone with her name and aspirations, she made a beeline for Dr. Smith's office, for D.R. Smith's office, or, I'm sorry, D.R. Smith's drugstore at the corner of Spring and Columbia Streets, only a few blocks from her home. It is interesting here to note that in Dr. Bowman's testimony, he said he saw Lizzie walking up the street Wednesday while his wife reported seeing her at 6 p.m. walking down street. Is it possible they both saw Lizzie at different times? Second Street sloped down toward the city hub, 
the term downstreet was always used when someone was headed that way. When Phoebe saw Lizzie at 6 o'clock, she was supposedly heading for Alice Russell's, whose home was down one street and over on Borden. A certain drugstore, however, was up the street from the Borden residence. The prosecution later brought it up to Dr. Bowen during the Superior Court trial. Parentheses section, 10 cents worth of prussic acid. Let me have a little drink here. And I'll also say I don't miss summer. Okay. The shop bell tinkled as Lizzie Board entered D.R. Smith's drugstore. The atmosphere was a, lay, was a laid-back, lazy afternoon of August temperatures. Outside, the clouds hung gray and threatening. A fan buzzed softly. A store clerk, Frederick B. Hart, looked out through the colored bottles and filled the storefront window and idly watched the traffic go by. He glanced at the woman in dark clothing who was making her way to the counters at the back of the store without taking special notice of her. She had something draped over her arm that looked like a cape or sack. It was not until the young woman asked for something unusual that the employees at D.R. Smith took notice. I would like to buy 10 cents worth of precious acid, she said, in a rather tremulous voice. I needed to clean the sealskin cape. The steel air in the store seemed to vibrate from her words. The employee behind the counter. Ah, here we go, okay. Frank H. Kilway. Seemed relieved when Eli Bentz, the head clerk, stepped over to offer her his assistance. She repeated the request. There was something in her manner, strange eyes, and guttural tone that struck with him. Would you not sell prussic acid without a doctor's prescription, he said. I needed to put it on the edge of a sealskin cape, she said emphatically, as a way to sidestep its medicinal treatment requirements. I cannot sell it to you without a doctor's prescription, he reiterated. It's very dangerous, and we do not sell it. I had purchased it before, she said undaunted. When the clerk stood firm, she turned hauntingly and exited the store. That's Miss Borden, Frank Kilroy said, as they watched the woman disappear down the street. D.R. Smith's drugstore looking north on Rodman. I'm sorry, okay. Sometimes the uh, captions are as big as the text, and so I'll run into the captions. I apologize. Um, Uncle John comes home for a visit. Bridget came down from her room about half past 11 and was surprised to see Lizzie standing in the kitchen. Now, not only was the girl eating meals regular with Mr. and Mrs. Borden for a change, she was actually early for the new meal. Bridget took down her pots and set them on the stove. She checked the fire and found it low. With a sigh, she headed, down cellar. She headed to the down cellar for a hot of coal. Just then, Andrew arrived at the side door. Bridget left Lizzie sitting in the large overstuffed chair by the small kitchen table and hurried to unlock the screen door. He entered with a curt greeting, his face pale and sickly, and walked into the dining room, where he laid his Prince Albert over the lounge arm. He settled in the sitting room. Bridget's lunch of mutton soup, broiled mutton cakes, broiled mutton, cakes, cookies, and tea was placed on the dining room table. Once again, Lizzie and her parents ate in tense silence. Andrew's stomach felt as though it would betray him with each bite. Abby appeared to be faring a little better, although she nibbled cautiously at the fare. She asked Bridget to serve Mr. Borden the Garfield tea she had prepared for him, and Andrew drank it. 
His face pitched in revulsion at the taste. The castor oil had been bad enough. Lizzie left the table, barely touching her food, and climbed the curved staircase to her room. Locking her door, she collapsed onto the lounge. What would she do now? She managed to doze off last night's visual catching up to her. It wasn't until she heard voices in the sitting room below that she realized John Morris was in the house. Her pulse quickened. He had come to help facilitate the Swansea farm deal transfer. She listened through the pipe set to the fireplace opening until their voices annoyed her. She finally replaced the brick and with panic filling her chest, formed a plan. Attorney Knowlton, during the inquest te testimony of John Morse, Knowlton, who did you see when you got there, that room? John actually arrived at the boarding house at 1.30 p.m. after taking a 12.35 train from New Bedford. Morse, the servant girl, Bridget led him in the back door. I asked if Mr. Borden was at home, or Andrew, I don't know which. She said he was in the lounge. I went in. He got up. He asked if I had been to dinner yet. I said I had not. But was not hungry at all, Mrs. Borden said. We have just had dinner a little while ago. It is all warm. I will put it on. She did in the dining room. I sat down and ate, and we went back to the, into the sitting room and chatted until about three or four. I was going to Swansea. I came over to Kirby's stable, hired a horse and buggy, and went over to Swansea. Kirby's stable was located at 13 Rock Street and was owned by Charles T. Kirby, probably related to Stephen P. Kirby, John's close friend and a possible relative in the horse business. There were two livery stables within steps of the Borden house on 2nd Street, yet John chose to walk several blocks to Rock Street to hire a horse and buggy. Knowlton. With Mr. Borden? Morris. No, sir. I asked him to go. He said he didn't feel able to. They were indisposed, all of them that day. Knowlton. And the daughter, Lizzie? Morris. Yes, Mrs. Mrs. Borden said they had been sick. Knowlton. Who did you see at the farm? Morris. An American. Frank Eddy. I saw what I was supposed to, I saw that I was supposed to be his, I saw who I was supposed to be his wife. I never was acquainted with her. Knowlton. Any other farmhands? No, sir. Knowlton. Stayed a supper over there? Morris. No, sir. I ate supper at William Vinicum's a little beyond there. Knowlton. And Warren? Morris. No, in Swansea. Knowlton. Got back home. Warren's house about what time? Morris. Morris. I got back to the house probably quarter to nine. Not far from that after dark. Knowlton. During preliminary hearing August 23rd, 1892. Knowlton. Did you see Mr. Eddie <clears throat> when you were over at the farm that night before the murders? Morris. I did. Knowlton. Did you give him any message from Mr. Borton? Morris. No, sir. Knowlton. Or tell him Mr. Borton sent you over. Morris, no, sir. There was one thing I forgot. I got some eggs from there for Mr. Borden. That is all. Knowlton, for him? Yes, sir. Mr. Franken's interview with Detective George e. F. Siever on Thursday, August 11th, 1892, before the start of the final day of the inquest testimony. Detective Siever, early Thursday morning, August 11th, went to Luther's Corner, Swansea, with Marshall Hilliard to the farm of the late Andrew J. Borden, and had an interview with Frederick Frank Eddy and Alfred C. Johnson, who had been employed on, on that place. 
Mr. Eddy 16 years, and Johnson for nine. The Fall River Herald on that day of the murder stated, The only Portuguese employed on the upper farm is Mr. Johnson, and he is confined to his bed by illness. An attempt was made to try and reach Swansea by telephone, but no answer was received. Parentheses, Albert Johnson was a Swede. The term Portuguese was a catch-all catch term for many immigrant ethnicities. Also notice a phone at the farm is mentioned. All right, guys, that's it. We're going to stop for tonight. I appreciate everybody coming. And you guys are just going to have to wait till next Sunday for the murder. Again, I appreciate everybody coming. Tomorrow night we'll be back on our regular schedule um, of guests. Got some great guests this week lined up for this week. One of them uh, is tomorrow. Uh, uh, it's going to be 6.30 p.m. Pacific with medium Nancy Matz, who's going to do some psychic readings for you guys, and she's also going to be discussing mental health. So we're going to be doing that tomorrow. Let me get like, adjusted here. Oh, man. I suck. So we're going to be doing that tomorrow. So that'll be again at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For you guys on TikTok, that is youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. So you'll be able to get in there at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I'll also put a teaser out there, assuming, assuming, okay, assuming TikTok distributes it, right? The way things have been going. Uh, if you guys want to show me some last-minute love, if you appreciate today's book reading, uh, that'd be great. Um, but um, I'm going to end this thing fairly fairly early. Uh, if you if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. I'm just equal opportunity here. Try to get the word out about my show. Share, share, share. Hit that like button as well. Okay? All right, guys. I'm going to let you go. And have a great evening to talk. I will see you guys hopefully tomorrow. Okay, Facebook and everybody else, uh, thank you very much for coming tonight. And I will see you guys 6.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow with Medium Nancy Mass. Have a great evening.